This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Finding Your Place and Who You Are. In the first half, Professor of Astronomy Dr. Denise Stevens shares her devotional address, Finding Your Place in the Universe. Then in the second half, we'll hear Dr. David Hart on Be Excellent, Finding Who You Are in Today's World. Here is Denise Stevens. Years ago, my husband bought me this cute little plaque that says, if it weren't for the last minute, I would never get anything done. I'm sure we can all relate. In our hurried and rushed lives, we often focus too much on the things that have deadlines, and we fail to make time for the things that matter most. We forget who we really are, and we lose sight of the eternal. We fail to take time to pray, to ponder, to seek personal revelation, to follow the promptings of the Spirit, to recognize God's hand in our lives and to feel His love. With eyes cast down and focused on the task at hand, we forget to look up. Today, I want to remind all of us to take the time to look up. I'm an astronomer, and I've always been fascinated with space. One of my earliest memories involves being at a school book fair when I was five or six years old and picking up a picture book containing photographs of Jupiter and its moons. The Voyager spacecraft had just arrived at Jupiter and returned the most stunning images of the four Galilean moons. I can still remember pictures of the moon Io in this book, with its volcanoes and intense orange and yellow colors. This little moon, just slightly larger than Earth's moon, should have been geologically dead, a gray cratered world similar to our own moon. Instead, it presented a beautiful, chaotic, changing landscape that absolutely intrigued me as a child, and I was hooked. As an astronomer, I often wonder, why God created objects like the moon Io? If you really think about it, there's no reason for our solar system to consist of anything more than a sun, a moon, and an earth. So why put eight planets around the sun instead of one? Why create exotic moons like Io around the giant planets? Why create Pluto and his friends in the Kuiper Belt? When I first saw pictures of Pluto and that heart-shaped region we call the Tombaugh Regio, I couldn't help but wonder, did God intentionally create a geological feature on Pluto in the shape of a heart that would just happen to be at the right location for us to see as we flew by during a four-hour window with a New Horizons spacecraft on July 14, 2015? I mean, did God put that feature on Pluto billions of years ago knowing we would never see it until these last days? As a reminder that He loves us, to remind us that He is aware of us. I don't know, but maybe. As I've studied God's creations in the heavens, I've come to believe that all of God's creations serve a purpose and exist for a reason. When Moses asked God to tell him why these things are so, God's response was, for mine own purpose have I made these things. Here is wisdom, and it remaineth in me. We may not know the whys of all of God's creations, but each of God's vast creations is a reminder that He is in charge, that there is a divine plan, and that we are here on this earth for a much greater purpose than what the world was espoused. The Lord taught Adam, and behold, all things have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me, both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual things which are in the heavens above, and things which are on the earth, and things which are in the earth, and things which are under the earth. Both above and beneath, all things bear record of me. Likewise, Alma taught, 
The scriptures are laid before thee, yea, and all things denote there is a God, yea, even the earth, and all things that are upon the face of it, yea, in its motion, yea, and also all the plants which move in their regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator. Each of God's creations is the witness that he lives. Sadly, we've done our best to build concrete jungles and light polluted skies that block our view of God's creations. We walk through this life with screens in front of our faces and plugs in our ears, completely oblivious to the wonder that surrounds us. With all of our technological advances, we become complacent like the Nephites. If you recall when Christ was born, the Nephites were blessed with an incredible sign. They received a day and a night and a day without darkness. After seeing such an incredible miracle, Nephi recorded, and it came to pass that the people began to forget those signs and wonders which they had heard and began to be less and less astonished at a sign or a wonder from heaven, insomuch that they began to be hard in their hearts and blind in their minds and began to disbelieve all which they had heard and seen. When you look at a picture of a star-forming region like this one in the Orion Nebula, do you realize how blessed you are to live in a day and age when the Lord provides with the technology to view His vast creations actually in the process of creation? Do you realize that only the prophets of old like Adam, Abraham, Enoch, and Moses were blessed with the knowledge that we have today? Knowledge so great that it caused Moses to exclaim, now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which things I never had supposed. I want to challenge each of you to put the phones away, to put aside the YouTube and the video games, and take time each day to be a witness to creation. Take a walk and feel the breeze. Run your hand through the grass. Enjoy a starry night sky. And give thanks for a supreme creator who has made this world for you. In primary, we're learning the words to the song, My Heavenly Father Loves Me, written by Clara W. McMaster. Whenever I hear the song of a bird or look at the blue, blue sky, whenever I feel the rain on my face or the wind as it rushes by, whenever I touch a velvet rose or walk by a lilac tree, I'm glad that I live in this beautiful world Heavenly Father created for me. He gave me my eyes that I might see the color of butterfly wings. He gave me my ears that I might hear the magical sound of things. He gave me my life, my mind, my heart. I thank him reverently for all his creations of which I'm a part. Yes, I know Heavenly Father loves me. Heavenly Father does love you and he knows you. Among all of his creations, you are the most important. Thanks to modern revelation, we know much about, much about what happened in the preexistence, the purpose of this earth and our sojourn on it, and the exaltation that awaits us after this life if we're faithful. We also know something about the glory of stars. In Abraham chapter three, the Lord gives Abraham an astronomy lesson. Abraham relates in verses two and three, and I saw the stars that they were very great, and that one of them was nearest unto the throne of God. And there were many great ones which were near unto it. And the Lord said unto me, these are the governing ones. And the name of the great one is Kolob, because it is near unto me, for I am the Lord thy God. I have set this one to govern all those which belong to the same order as that upon which thou standest. Now I'm gonna do my best to give you an astronomy lesson about the different glories of stars based on the limited knowledge of man. When you look at stars in the night sky, they all appear to be roughly the same. That's because they're so far away, they appear as points of light. And they're so dim, 
that not enough photons reach your eye for you to distinguish the color of most stars. But if you look closely, you will notice that the brighter stars tend to be red or blue. The stars aren't all white. Their color corresponds to their temperature. And when you are able to calculate the distance to the stars, you can determine their luminosity or true brightness. Combining information about temperature and luminosity of a star, you can calculate its radius. When you plot the luminosity of a star against its temperature, you get a plot like this one called an HR diagram. What we find is that stars are not all the same. They vary in glory. The brighter stars are at the top of this plot. The dimmer stars are at the bottom. The hottest stars are the blue stars on the left. And the coldest stars are the red stars on the right. The stars in the upper right-hand corner are the largest stars in the galaxy. Betelgeuse is one of the largest stars in our galaxy. It is colder than the sun, but much brighter, and it's producing far more energy than the sun does. It is a supergiant star, about a thousand times larger in radius than the sun. In this plot, you can see that if we replaced our sun with Betelgeuse, it would engulf all the planets out to Jupiter. Betelgeuse, along with all the other supergiant stars, is near the end of its life, and it's going to die very, very soon, perhaps in the next 50 million years or so. I pray it happens tomorrow, honestly. <laughs> what an amazing sign in the heavens that would be. In the lower left-hand corner of this plot, we find the smallest stars called white dwarfs. They're not all really stars. A star is an object that produces energy through nuclear fusion. But a white dwarf is the leftover core of a star that's died and shed its outer layers to space. In this picture of the cat's eye nebula, you can see the white dwarf at the center surrounded by layers of gas that were blown off when the star died. Seven billion years from now when our sun dies, it may look very similar to this nebula with a white dwarf at the center. If you compare the glory of the sun to their stars, it becomes quite obvious the sun is not a great star. You can look very close to that plot, you can see it there in the middle. It's that yellow star on that main sequence. The sun is not the largest star, it is not the hottest star, and it is not the brightest star. But even though it is not the greatest, the sun perfectly fills its measure of creation. It provides the energy we need for life on this earth. If it was hotter and more luminous, it would be too hot for liquid to be a water on the surface of the earth, and life could not exist. And if the sun were colder or fainter, we would freeze. As you further compare the sun's characteristics to that of other stars, like its color, its lifetime, and its magnetic activity, you quickly realize that stars like the sun are ideal for providing an environment that can sustain life. The sun has the perfect set of attributes to fulfill the calling it's been given. After the Lord taught Abraham about the differences in stars, he began to teach Abraham about the intelligences or spirits that existed before this earth. Abraham saw you, and he saw me, and all the spirit children of God. In verse 18, the Lord taught Abraham how be it that he made the greater star, as also if there be two spirits, and one shall be more intelligent than the other, yet these two spirits notwithstanding one is more intelligent than the other, have no beginning. They existed before, they shall have no end, they shall exist after, for they are no law more eternal. Now at first it might seem unfair that the Lord calls some spirits more intelligent than others, but remember our lesson on stars. Each star is different, each has different attributes, and each is at a different stage in its development, and each star has a different mission. 
Likewise, each child of God is different. We each have different attributes or talents. We each are at a different stage in our eternal development. And we each have a different mission on this earth. Because we are God's children, he knows us perfectly and what gifts and talents we brought with us to this earth. He has placed us on this earth at this time and in our current situation so that we can best grow, develop, and fulfill our mission here on the earth. Just like the sun, each of you has the perfect attributes and qualities you need to fill the measure of your creation. And if you continue to read on to verse 19, the Lord explains to Abraham, these two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other, there shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God, I am more intelligent than they all. Combining verses 18 and 19, we learn some important truths about ourselves. First, we are not all the same. There will always be someone more intelligent or more gifted in something than you are. And likewise, you'll be more intelligent or gifted with some attribute than someone else. But we also learn that we are eternal. While all the stars you see in the sky will eventually die, you will live forever. That means you have an infinite amount of time to change and to grow. You are not stagnant. You are a spirit son or daughter of God. And as such, you have inherited the potential to become like him. And as he is the most intelligent of all, each of us can grow in intelligence and ability to become like him, to eventually become perfect as he is. Perfection won't happen in this life, but the growth and development you obtain in this life will carry with you into the next life and give you that much more advantage in the life to come as you continue in your quest to become like our Father in heaven. In this day of Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, etc., pick your favorite social media app. It's easy to get caught in the trap of comparing your life to the life of others and to feel that your life is somehow lacking. Caught up in the race to perfection, setbacks, challenges, trials, and failures can seem overwhelming. Remember the lesson on stars. We are not all the same. We are not all meant to be the brightest star, the largest star, or the hottest star. In fact, we may not even be meant to be a star. And if we keep comparing ourselves against something that we're not, we will never find true happiness in this life. We will never become the person that our Heavenly Father wants us to become. In my research, I study objects that are called brown dwarfs. The scientific community refers to these objects as failed stars because they form like a star out of a cloud of gas and dust. But they don't have enough mass to ignite hydrogen fusion in their cores. Thus, they never become stars. I hate the label failed stars because these objects were never meant to be stars. They were created to be brown dwarfs and they are absolutely amazing. When a brown dwarf first forms, it's relatively hot but without an internal energy source, it slowly cools the space over time. Some of the younger and more massive brown dwarfs are as hot as the coldest stars at 3,500 Kelvin, while some of the older and less massive brown dwarfs have temperatures near 200 Kelvin. That is colder than the Earth. As these objects cool, clouds will form in their atmosphere, very similar to the cloud formation we see on Earth and on Jupiter. With their cloud structures, Rounders look a lot more like planets than stars, and they provide valuable knowledge for scientists who want to understand the atmospheres of gas giant planets that are orbiting other stars. You see, it's almost impossible to directly image a gas giant planet around its parent star. The star is so much brighter than the planet 
that we cannot directly detect light from the planet with our current technology. But since a brown dwarf is isolated in space and is not in orbit around another star, it can be easily studied to determine the properties of its atmosphere and cloud structure. Because the temperatures of brown dwarfs are similar to what we find for the gas giant planets, we can apply our knowledge of brown dwarf atmospheres to make assumptions of what the atmospheres of these extrasolar planets must be like. Thus, brown dwarfs provide astronomers with essential knowledge that could be obtained in no other way. They perfectly fill the measure of their creation, and they are not failed stars. If anything, they are overachieving planets. The next time you doubt your self-worth or feel that you're lacking as you compare yourself to others, remember that you're a child of God. You are his creation. And you are perfect in who you are meant to be. Reach out to him and he will help you discover the gifts and talents he's given you and the mission he has for you in this life. None of us are failures. Like Abraham, Moses also had the privilege to talk with God face to face and to be shown the earth and all the inhabitants of the earth. I want to highlight some of the scriptures in Moses chapter one as we conclude today. In verses three and four, God instructs Moses, behold, I am the Lord God Almighty and endless is my name, for I am without beginning of days or end of years, and is not this endless? And behold, thou art my son, wherefore look, and I will show thee the workmanship of mine hands. Remember, you are a son or a daughter of God. Let that knowledge inspire you to take the time each day to seek his guidance. If you will just look, just ask, he'll reveal truths unto you, truths that you need to know. In verse six, God instructs Moses, and I have a work for thee, Moses, my son. Can each of you hear God's voice speaking to you in your heart, telling you that you are his son or his daughter and that he has a work for you? Then God continues, and thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten, and my only begotten is and shall be the Savior, for he is full of grace and truth. God created you. He created you in his likeness and in his image, and he provided a Savior for you because he wants you to return to him. He is doing all within his power to make it possible for you to gain exaltation. You just have to choose his path and endure to the end. Then the Lord concludes by telling Moses, but there is no God besides me, and all things are present with me, for I know them all. God knows you. He knows all his children. He knows your strengths, and he knows your weaknesses. He knows precisely what you need to do in this life to return to him, to partake of his glory, and to become like him. Let that knowledge inspire you to put your full trust in him and commit now to follow the promptings that he sends you. Knowing that he was a son of God inspired Moses and gave him the strength he needed to withstand Satan. Knowing his divine nature, Moses made the commitment to serve God and to worship him only and to continually call upon the name of God. Likewise, each of us can take strength in knowing that we are a child of God and of infinite worth. That knowledge can see us through our most difficult challenges and struggles, especially if it inspires us to continually call upon God for help and guidance. When you are most weighed down with anger or doubt, if you can remember to look up, to behold God's vast creations, you will be reminded of your eternal nature and that your current challenge or struggle is just a small moment in the time frame of eternity. Remember that after the Lord showed Moses the incredible vision of the earth 
and taught him about worlds without number, and that there was no end to his works, he did explain to Moses the purpose of this earth. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Among all of our Father in Heaven's vast creations, you are the focus of his work and his glory. While earth will come and go, stars will live and die, you are eternal. Your exaltation is the reason for the creation of everything you see around you. Remember that our Father in Heaven knows you and he loves you. You are his child and the workmanship of his hands. And he wants nothing more than for you to return to him and become like him someday. Never forget to look up. He is there and he's waiting for you and he'll help you find your place in this universe. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is finding your place and who you are. We've just heard from Dr. Denise Stevens. After the break, we'll return with David Hart for Be Excellent, Becoming Who You Are in Today's World. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Finding Your Place and Who You Are. Next is Dr. David Hart, Associate Professor of Ethics and Public Management with Be Excellent, Becoming Who You Are in Today's World. When I was invited to speak, I immediately called my wife to share my concerns and doubts about this opportunity and seek her counsel and support. Her response was helpful. She said, of course you'll do it. You're in your 50s. That's what old people at BYU do. With that qualification, I proceed. There is an ancient temple in Greece in some foothills near the ocean dedicated to the Greek god Apollo. Above the entrance of this temple, now referred to as the Oracle at Delphi, is the following well-known inscription, Know Thyself. This simple yet profound invitation reflects an important step in our progression as human beings. Like many societies, the Greeks were concerned with existential questions like what it means to be human. Some of the best thinking on this is captured in what I argue is one of the more significant non-scriptural books in Western literature. The philosopher Aristotle addressed these kinds of issues in an unfortunately titled book called The Nicomachean Ethics. In it, he asks the question, what does it mean to be fully human? Or as he puts it, what is the highest human good? He spends the first part of the book dismissing what the world tells us is important, such as wealth and pleasure. His conclusion? Our most fully human aspiration is personal excellence, or in his words, an activity of soul exhibiting excellence. The Greek term for excellence, arete, is an interesting one. Arete is the act of living up to one's potential, whether it's applied to a building, an animal, or a human. So the Greeks believed that all humans are born with innate potential, and our purpose in life is to figure out what that is and then act on it. This mindset is reflected in psychology as well. Many of you may be familiar with Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. While parts of his theory are problematic, he argues that the highest human need is self-actualization. According to Maslow, self-actualization is the need to realize our potential, our creative abilities, and basically to be the best person we are capable of becoming. In short, we need to be all that we can be. You're probably starting to see where I'm going with this. We are born with unique potential that we need to fulfill during our lives. 
the philosopher Charles Taylor emphasized this distinct and individual need. There's a certain way of being human that is my way, and not an imitation of anyone else's life. Uh, but this notion gives us a new importance to being true to myself. If I am not, I miss what being human is for me. You have been blessed with a set of skills, abilities, and gifts that are unique to you and you alone. Furthermore, you have an obligation to find out what those are and then figure out how you can express them. In other words, how to imprint your uniqueness of self on the world. So a variety of philosophers, psychologists, and writers, among others, all tell us what has already been revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our main purpose here on earth is to become, to become our best, but more importantly, to become perfect, even like our Father in heaven is perfect. This challenge is simple yet complex. We have to have a body. We need to keep the commandments. We need to fulfill certain ordinances. But along with these amazing opportunities, we also have an obligation to take full advantage of our experience here on earth. What are your unique gifts? Are you fully developing them? Are you being all you can be? What does that even mean? Am I trying to put pressure on you to succeed in a world today where you are under unprecedented amounts of stress? The answer is no and yes. No, I'm not trying to stress you out even more. To the contrary, my goal today is to provide some direction so that you can find your singular way through the world. But yes, I do want to encourage you to be true to yourself, your God-given potential, and be excellent. But what in the world did Aristotle mean by an activity of soul exhibiting excellence? What does it mean to be all you can be? Let me provide a quick example. Aaron Shami is a student in our executive MPA program, and 15 years ago, he was one of the premier speed climbers in the world. Speed climbers compete by scaling climbing walls as quickly as possible. It is a demanding sport, and to be the best, you must be an elite athlete. It takes a tremendous amount of talent, effort, and time to be a world champion at just about anything. At the age of 18, Aaron was an X Games champion, gold medalist, but he was also self-actualizing. These periods of self-fulfillment and personal excellence can be transformational. As Aaron said, it was just complete exhilaration and I was hooked from day one. Rock climbing became such a foundation, a base of who I am as a person. Aaron is one of the lucky ones who found his niche where he was allowed to grow, be challenged, and realize his potential. But sports is an easy example. Personal excellence can be found in many parts of our lives. For example, until recently, I was the director of the MPA program here on campus. I was consistently struck at how many of our students and alumni were drawn to the program by a deeply intrinsic pull. A common story often conveyed is that someone heard about the MPA program through a poster or a friend or relative and once they learned more, angels started singing, meaning the idea of the public service was resounding on a profoundly personal level. For certain people, careers in the public and nonprofit service will allow them to fulfill their professional potential. But the MPA is clearly not meant for everybody, just like speed climbing or being a concert violinist is not. That's part of the beauty of our Heavenly Father's plan. We are all unique beings, but we all need to find a way to imprint our uniqueness in some way on the world around us. Many of you are at a point in your lives where these questions are particularly salient. I hope you all recognize the sacredness of these decisions. Many of you are not only deciding what you will be spending most of your waking hours doing, but also how you will do it. It is likely an exciting, anxiety-inducing time. While some of you will be blessed with having your calling in life laid out clearly before you, others will not. 
If not, your challenge is to discover the set of gifts that are, that are distinctly yours and find ways to give expression to them. So while I strongly encourage all of you to seek fulfilling career options, I also strongly encourage you to remember that there are multiple and sometimes subtle ways to fulfill your potential as one of Heavenly Father's children. It can come from a, your job, a church calling, raising a family, volunteering in your community, or even something as unusual as becoming a freestyle canoeer. A key message from today's devotional is this. Personal excellence is not about being the best, but being your best at whatever you choose to do. And why are you obligated to be the best you can be? Philosophers would tell us that it's the ultimate purpose of our existence, the highest human good. Psychologists would tell us that not fulfilling our highest human needs creates any number of forms of alienation, all of which are unhealthy. Sports coaches tell us that potential just means we haven't done anything yet. And finally, the gospel tells us that we are here to develop and become like our Father in heaven. Furthermore, the scriptures state that unto whom much is given, much is required, and we all have been given much. All these perspectives lead to the conclusion that in order to be healthy and happy in this life and the next, we need to fully develop ourselves. Finding and pursuing your unique excellence is an introspective and reflective process that should be guided by the Spirit. It is not a free ticket to be irresponsible and selfish. The world would have us believe that finding yourself is a self-centered journey without consequence. You do not want to rely on what the world tells you that you should do with your life. Your potential is yours alone, and it is your sacred obligation to figure out what that is and to pursue it. While there's no blueprint for success in finding and fulfilling your potential, the first step is to know thyself. I would like to offer five suggestions that may help you on your way. I start with practical advice and progress to gospel-centered principles that can provide personal insight and put you in a position to find your excellence and also take full advantage of life's opportunities. First, the practical advice. Be engaged. The short answer to being engaged means giving your whole and best self to whatever you are doing. This may sound similar to the tired cliché of giving 100% in whatever you do, but it's more substantial than that. Let me explain. The first step to being engaged is to be fully present in whatever demands your attention. Give your total effort and attention to whatever you are doing. Even if it's a dumb homework assignment, a boring conversation with a friend, or a mind-numbing, soul-sucking job, it's in your interest to be fully engaged and give your best effort. Why? Because it's great practice. Being engaged puts you in tune with yourself. The less engaged you are in life, the less in touch you will be with your potential. Being engaged will teach you a lot about yourself, your interests, and where you can pursue your excellence. While you anxiously engage in what you are doing, I also encourage you to seek out opportunities for deeper, more meaningful levels of engagement. The ideal form of engagement is a state of total immersion in a task that is challenging yet closely matched to your abilities. When this happens, we often lose self-consciousness. In sports, it's sometimes called being in the zone. While some, while some social scientists call it flow because it often feels like effortless movement. It can happen with physical activities, creative activities, spiritual activities, or even in meaningful interactions with others. I often find this state of immersion when I'm deep at work in research, or in a particularly good day of class, or preparing for devotionals, or serving others, or even when skiing. Remember, however, 
that the most meaningful, fully human activities almost always involve betterment, making the people and environment around us better in some way. Experiencing what some call flow is critical in discovering your excellence because it's at these moments that you are likely tapping into your distinct talents and abilities. As you become aware of these moments, start searching for patterns and match them up with a humble and accurate assessment of yourself and the practical possibilities that they present. It will help you along a path toward finding additional opportunities for personal growth, flow, and ultimately fulfilling your potential. My second suggestion in discovering your personal excellence is to increase your self-awareness. In short, you have to know who you are before you can figure out what you're going to do with yourself. Unfortunately, you face some challenging obstacles in this process. We live in a world of unprecedented distraction. With the advent of technology and the explosion of media in its wake, we live in an extraordinary time where we have nearly unlimited access to information, entertainment, and other people. It is truly a blessing, but it can also be a curse. As the author Michael Harris recently put it, as we embrace technology's gifts, we usually fail to consider what they ask of us in return, the subtle, hardly noticeable payments we make in exchange for their marvelous service. So what exactly are we giving up when we submerge into our phones or other devices? What are we being drawn away from? This author argues that we give up absence or lack. As he puts it, quote, the daydreaming silences in our lives are filled, the burning solitudes are extinguished, end quote. We are giving up those vital, empty moments where we often and unintentionally learn about ourselves, receive spiritual promptings and other insights that only come in the space of absence from the noise in our lives. A final comment from Harris explains why this is so troublesome. Quote, we need absences in order to think and see for ourselves. Indeed, the kinds of thoughts that present themselves in our emptiest moments, the moments when we stare out the train's windows or hover on a lawn and monitor the sky, are the only thoughts that can deliver a strange new understanding." End quote. The strange new understanding as it relates here regards insights of self-awareness or a better understanding of who we are as individuals. My suggestion to you is to build absence into your lives. Set aside times to unplug, remove distraction, and let your mind wander. As an avid consumer of technology, this has been understandably challenging for me. I'm a runner and have always listened to music to help pass the time. A year or so ago, I decided to run every other time without music. It was an embarrassingly painful process, but it has been surprisingly liberating. Some of my best insights about myself, my work, and personal revelation have come while I was running and not thinking about anything in particular. I urge you to follow the advice of Marcus Aurelius who offered the following counsel. Allow yourself a space of quiet wherein you can add to your knowledge of the good and learn to curb your restlessness. Build spaces of quiet into your lives, be patient, and I think you will be surprised by the results. My third suggestion to you is to be awful, or put another way, be full of awe. <laughs> Make a conscious, a conscious effort to find awe and wonder in the small and ordinary of everyday life. As an example from an unimportant aspect of life, I love running in the mountains because I find so much awe in the beauty of nature. While it's easy to be blown away by a beautiful overlook, I find equal wonder in a sweet, in a sweet stretch of single track, the bend of a creek, or by the sound of my feet crunching on a rocky trail. As a professor, it's just as easy to find awe in the contribution of students in a great class discussion, 
or in a particularly good passage of writing. My favorite awe, however, is watching my boys grow up and be strong in the gospel. Along these lines, I would further submit that you find awe in the spiritual side of what you do. Earnestly seek to see and appreciate the Lord's hand in your life, because it's everywhere around you. It's easy to see the Lord's handiwork in nature, but I challenge you to search for the same kind of awe in all the Lord's creations, whether it be in the people that you interact with at school or work, or even in the more menial tasks that we do every day. All of us here are tremendously blessed in ways we may not fully realize, and we all benefit even more when we recognize the Lord's influence in our lives. The point here is that in today's world, it's tougher and tougher to be awed by ordinary things. Make an extra effort to find awe in the everyday aspects of your lives and take a moment to say, wow, because in so doing, your senses will be heightened and in turn will will reveal more about you and opportunities for you to apply your uniqueness. My fourth suggestion to you on your quest for knowing yourself and your unique excellence is to be selfless. As I mentioned earlier, Uh, The world would have us think that finding who you are in this life is an intensely selfish journey where your personal happiness trumps everything. The irony of this attitude is that it is just the opposite that not only leads to personal happiness, but also reveals a lot about who we are as individuals. The gospel of Jesus Christ is completely grounded in selflessness. The atonement of our Savior was the ultimate act of selflessness. The Lord voluntarily took upon Himself the sins of the world so that we can return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. The basic principles of the Church here on the earth today are also grounded in selflessness. Some of those principles include preaching the gospel, building up our fellow saints, temple work, and caring for the needy. All of these at their their very base require selflessness on our part, and we all know that when we do these things, we are happiest and at our best. A quick example from a recent prophet illustrates this point. Several years ago, the Church produced a documentary on the Prophet Gordon B. Hinckley. One part focused on his time as a missionary. President Hinckley describes how, like many of us, he struggled with homesickness and his effectiveness as a missionary. He sent a letter home where he shared his doubts and discouragement. His father sent a brief letter in return that said, I have only one suggestion. Forget yourself and go to work. The next day in scripture study, Elder Hinckley happened to read a powerful message in Luke chapter 9. I'd like to read verses 23 and 24. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. It may seem counterintuitive to some that you find yourself when you lose yourself. While these verses are laden with meaning, the relevance here is twofold. First, forget yourself and go to work. Throw yourself into whatever you are doing. The less time we spend pacing up and down within the cell of our circumstance, to borrow a phrase from Elder Maxwell, the more likely it is that we will find meaning in what we are doing. President Hinckley blossomed as a missionary shortly after committing to lose himself in the work. In fact, he states that it was a life-changing moment. Second, selflessness keeps us grounded as we seek to find and exercise our personal excellence. If one were to get too caught up in finding his or her potential, it could be easy to become self-absorbed and put important relationships in jeopardy. Returning for a moment to the speed climber Aaron Shammy, he states that one of the reasons he left competitive climbing was because he saw that to continue to be the best, he would risk sacrificing family relationships and other critical priorities. 
the Lord challenges us to lose ourselves so that we can have the attitudes that will keep us grounded, humble, and open to learning. In, lo in losing ourselves, we learn about ourselves, and that, and that insight provides invaluable perspective in finding our excellence. My final suggestion is to be compassionate. Several years ago, my wife Lisa and I attended a regional conference where, where Elder Robert D. Hale spoke. He spent an hour talking about a single scripture in the book of Jude. Verse 22 simply reads, And of some have compassion, making a difference. He noted that there are two essential parts to compassion, feeling and doing. These are both very relevant to the topic at hand. Feeling is the capacity to feel what others feel. This is also known as empathy. The economist Adam Smith gave a great definition several hundred years ago. A person must endeavor as much as he can to put himself in the situation of the other and to bring home to himself every little circumstance of distress which can possibly occur to the sufferer. This is perhaps best demonstrated in the most compassionate person in the most compassionate act. One of the key actions of the Atonement was Christ's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there that He suffered through every feeling and every situation. Because of that, Christ is truly the most compassionate being because He can actually relate to every possible circumstance we encounter. By extension, a critical part of our development is learning to have empathy, to feel. But true compassion does not stop there. Doing means actually acting on those feelings. Not coincidentally, the best model again is our Savior. A classic but common example is found in John 11 when Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. He comes to the grieving family, and when he sees their grief, verse 33 tells us that he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He also wept with the family. He was feeling. And then he acted. He asked to be taken to Lazarus and with great faith raised him from the dead. There are myriad examples like this in the scriptures. Being dialed into your feelings of empathy and acting on them is also necessary in finding your excellence. Compassion is an indispensable part of your personal growth that will, will reveal much about your distinct set of skills and what types of situations will allow you to better the people and environment around you. In conclusion, recognize that as a child of your Father in Heaven, you have been given a unique set of skills, talents, abilities, and gifts, and that you have an obligation to develop them so that you can bless the lives of those around you. For most of us, however, finding our excellence and acting on it doesn't just happen. It needs to be a thoughtful, systematic process. If you follow the suggestions I have offered and combine it with earnest prayer and pondering, it can provide you with the insight needed to see where and possibly how you can maximize your potential and leave your indelible mark in the world. If you don't know thyself and act on it, you will not be taking advantage of those sacred gifts. The philosopher Thomas Hobbes said, Hell is when the man that is comes face to face with the man that might have been. I think all of us would like to avoid that realization. So engage life, create time for absence, find reasons to say, wow, selflessly serve others with love and compassion, and you will learn a lot about yourself and of the gifts that have been bestowed upon you. Finally, remember the words of superhero philosopher Peter Parker in the first Spider-Man movie, that with great power comes great responsibility. What is that responsibility? It is not just to act, but to find out what is uniquely yours and give expression to it. Spend your time here at BYU learning about who you really are and preparing yourselves to have an impact on the world. Then go and do. 
be excellent, and make a difference. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Finding Your Place and Who You Are, with thoughts from Denise Stevens and David Hart. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.